Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. Special thanks go to my supporters on Patreon, who make this podcast possible. If you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast and would like to support it, then head over to patreon.com forward slash aerospace. There are multiple levels of support, but pledging even a dollar an episode is highly appreciated. Thanks for your support. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Chris Voorhees is the founder and president of First Mode, a Seattle-based company that is designing and building technology for extreme environments off and on planet Earth. Chris has decades of experience in the implementation of robotic systems for the exploration of deep space. His notable experience includes his work as a mobility systems engineer for NASA's Spirit and Opportunity rovers and lead mechanical engineer for NASA's Curiosity rover. For his efforts, Chris received NASA's Exceptional Achievement and Exceptional Engineering Achievement medals. Today, Chris oversees the design, development, and deployment of engineered solutions for missions around the globe and throughout the solar system. First Mode is also focusing on significant problems on Earth, including the challenging issues of sustainability for the natural resources sector. In this episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, Chris and I talk about his background in engineering, including his time at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, his past work on Mars rovers, why we should go back to the moon, the space projects First Mode is currently involved with, and First Mode's growing engagement in the hydrogen sector. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation as much as I did, but now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Chris Voorhees. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So to start off our conversation, I'd like to ask you about your background as an engineer. So how did you get interested in engineering and how has your career evolved to where you are today? Uh, yeah, it's um, not, not an atypical path, I think. I, uh, um, at least in what I found in, in uh, working and, and recruiting and uh, learning from other engineers over time. Um, yeah, my my background, uh, you know, and, and as a as a kid growing up, uh, I, I actually uh, flip flopped between um, between music and engineering uh, and uh, kind of technically minded things as I was a kid growing up, and then. Uh, almost became a music, you know, almost went into music in my uh, in my university education, and uh, had to make a decision around uh, you know which which pathway to take. And in in my uh, secondary school in high school, uh, I, um, uh, which I'm going to date myself here, which was uh, uh, this was happened in 1989. There was a particular um, solar system exploration event that occurred. Uh, and, um, and that was 
the Voyager 2 spacecraft's um, rendezvous with the planet Neptune um, and uh, did a flyby on, on its way out of the solar system. And I was, uh, I was kind of taken aback by the, um, the complexity of what I was watching, like the, 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 the actual engineering feat of being able to return spectacular color imagery from a planet um, you know, billions of miles away from uh, the Earth uh, with, a, with a satellite, you know, with a spacecraft that had been launched uh, uh, all, all, you know, many, many, many years earlier. Uh, and, uh, and I wanted to know more about how that happened. And I wanted to know more about how, uh, how you do that. Uh, and I found out that there was a kind of a center of the universe of that type of, uh, solar system exploration at NASA's jet propulsion laboratory. Uh, and in Walla university, I was able to, um, was able to do an internship uh, with with JPL, uh, and I remember my first like day vividly uh, from that. Uh, and I, I walked in to the section and building that I uh, was op was going to be working in, and on the wall was a blueprint uh, because at the time, once again, dating myself, there were blueprints. Um, and the blueprint had a full-sized, uh, it was a full-sized drawing of, uh, the current concept of a six-wheeled, small, like, RC car-sized rover. Uh, and at the time it was called the Micro Rover Flight Experiment. And we now know it as Sojourner Truth, the first, um, first rover uh, on the surface of Mars. And, and that was my first job was jumping into that, to that problem, helping that get finished in build and test and getting it to the surface of the red planet. And I was kind of hooked at that point, um, on, uh, that type of work, like the intersection of the creative aspects of engineering and these, um, really decidedly, uh, what looked like insurmountable problems at the beginning, uh, and how to bring those together and create something that hasn't been created before. Um, and, uh, you know, I just kind of ran with that, um, and, uh, had the, the privilege of, um, of experiencing really a, a, a revolution in Mars exploration. Uh, from the inside, from, you know, from a very intimate perspective, um, because uh, the last 20 plus years of, um, of first the United States and now an international um, uh, collaborative set of explorations uh, in understanding and characterizing and answering questions about the past and the present of, uh, of the, the Martian surface. Uh, it's been, um, uh, a, a regular occurrence now, uh, every 26 months for, uh, for the last 20 plus years. And I was, I was privileged to play a role in, in almost all of those, 
those uh, spacecraft and missions. Um, and uh, uh, of, I think of particular note, at least for my professional career, um, was uh, Spirit and Opportunity, uh, the two kind of golf cart sized rovers that um, landed on the surface of Mars in early 2004. And uh, I was responsible for the development of the mobility systems for those two vehicles. I was in my 20s. Um, and that was uh, like my, my first really big contribution of, uh, of responsibility uh, and working on something under an enormous time scale or time frame uh, constraints and uh, working with a team that was trying to pull together um, uh, a radically different concept uh, and try to get it to the ground in time. And, um, and, and being able to see that experience all the way through um, what I like to call cradle to grave. Like I saw it at the beginning and then was there when we were operating it at the end. Um, and, uh, and then I'm happy to say that, that they both lasted several years after we landed them. Um, and, uh, and so that experience, uh, I think was, uh, was really transformative for me. Um, I went on to, to be the chief mechanical engineer for the curiosity rover, which is the larger, like car sized nuclear power rover that's on the surface of Mars right now. Uh, it's still, still, uh, still roving and it is actually like the, it has a lot of the engineering bones and design bones of NASA's perseverance rover, which is on its way to Mars today. Um, I actually left JPL, uh, several years ago because I was interested in solar system exploration and deep space exploration for a different, for different reasons, for commercial reasons, and joined a company called planetary resources as a very early employee, uh, to, uh, to develop robotic tools for the characterization of resources in space, particularly near earth asteroids. So I was intrigued by the problem of like, how do you design a spacecraft that answers the same types of questions? that we answer with discovery uh, on, uh, of an ore body on earth and characterizing it for mining. How do you answer those same questions with a different tool? Uh, this, this tool being a, a deep space spacecraft uh, and was responsible for the building out the engineering team and technical team there. Uh, and, uh, uh, and also because it was a startup um, uh, understanding like how to grow a business, how to develop that business out, how fundraising works and, and how you, how you sell an audacious proposition like that. Um, and, and we had a lot of fun, built a great team, uh, flew some spacecraft. Uh, and then I got to experience the other part of being a startup, which is to run into a funding brick wall at the end of it. Uh, and, and, uh, feel what that full bodied experience feels like. Um, and that's actually where first mode came from, which is the company that I'm, I, I am currently president of and proud to be a founder of was, was uh, a group of, of members of that team, uh, that technical team that wanted to stay together. We felt like we had unfinished business. 
And really what we felt like is that the tools and techniques that you use to design, develop, and deploy a, a spacecraft to, to do a very specific job like that, to explore the solar system, um, those tools and techniques are, while very useful in space, they're also useful in other places, other critical problems that are resource constrained, um, being disrupted by new challenges and uh, are happening in extreme places uh, here on Earth. And so our company works both in space and in other areas uh, um, around the world uh, where we believe we can solve similar problems. Great. Well, thanks for sharing kind of your, your background story. I think when I was growing up, I probably had, or I, I do remember a very similar story, you know, where I'd look up uh, the stars and kind of be quite awed by the expanse of space and um, finding that this was kind of a very exciting area to be involved in. Um, and um, we'll, we'll get to first mode, uh, your current company, in just a while. But before we do get there, I would like to ask you um, a bit about NASA and your experiences at NASA. So, for example, I did an internship, a uh, three-month internship at NASA as well when I was a, a PhD student. And of course, coming from Europe, this was kind of like an experience of, of, of a lifetime to be able to, to work um, at NASA. So are there any kind of personal lessons learned um, that you've taken away from your time at NASA that kind of st still serve you well in your career today? Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple um, that... Um that were formative uh, in that time period. Uh, the first one is that um, when when you're faced with uh, the when you're faced with the challenge of um, of like answering like a, a deep space spacecraft, right? It's going out and exploring someplace. Uh, it, it it usually is under an enormous number of constraints. Uh, and so those constraints are, um, you know, you may, it never has enough mass, never has enough power, never has enough volume. It's a hundred you know, million kilometers away, if not more. And, and so it, it has trouble communicating. So it, all of those resources are under severe constraints. And yet you're still like, you're still having to solve a very complex problem or answer some very sophisticated questions scientifically about you know, the, the nature of the formation of a world or the, the formation of the universe or the solar system, right? So that those those are going to be very nuanced questions with very sophisticated measurements to try to stitch that story together. And so I think what I learned was that uh, when you're in the, when you're in that kind of over-constrained environment, it's critical to understand exactly what it is you need to do. Like the, the, the specific requirements and success criteria of the tool that you're creating and what it must do uh, to achieve success because you're constantly under threat of not being able to achieve that as you're designing this new tool. And so you almost have to constantly remind yourself, am I still doing the thing that I say I'm going to do? Am I still achieving the goals that I think I do? Am I achieving a threshold that uh, is acceptable to answering this question because if I don't answer these questions, it's actually not even worth going. And, and so because, uh, sometimes it comes down to a matter of grams, 
you have to remove something because you don't have enough mass. Um, and so you, you have to know what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it. You have to be able to question that all the time. It's, it's critical. Uh, and I'd say the other thing that I learned is that it's still possible to do those things. Um, that uh, it is possible to uh, take um, a problem that looks impossible, break it down into individual components. It's possible for those components to work in parallel. And it's actually possible to deliver that on a schedule that is like determined by the alignment of the planets. Uh, and that you can start at the beginning of that and not know what you're going to do. And at the end of it, you can be doing it on the surface of another planet. And that it seems almost all the way through that, it, it seems like it's going to be impossible to do. Uh, but because you can break it down into parts that are possible and stitch those together, uh, you can make something that looks crazy at the beginning. Uh, you can implement it at the end. And it's, I, uh, it opened my eyes to what, when you're, when you're coordinated and you really have a purpose, what, um, a good group of engineers and scientists can create. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very kind of key insight to probably good engineering in general is this kind of going into a project and almost feeling quite daunted by the by the task of, you know, trying to achieve it. But then when you do break it down into key components and take them step by step and then fit them back together, it can actually in the long run then seem like it wasn't much of a difficult task when in fact it was actually quite complicated. So yeah, that's definitely a key insight um, yeah, to, to keep in mind. So now going forward to your current company, First Mode, um, you previously mentioned that kind of one of the key areas or one of the key missions you had was this idea of extreme environments. So could you perhaps just elaborate a little bit on the mission and goal of First Mode? Uh, yeah, once again, it's it's to take the like that same set of, of processes that I, I kind of just described being purpose driven, like knowing really exactly what your objectives are and what your requirements are. Uh, understanding how the how the, the complex system you're creating is interrelated, understanding the interfaces just as much as the components, that that philosophy and that process is portable from one type of problem to another. And that we go out now and look for problems that we are interested in and problems that we think are important where that process can result in a purpose-driven solution for a customer, whether that customer is in space, whether that customer is at the bottom of an underground mine or underwater, or it is operating in a place that is likely being constrained by the environment that it's in, or, or also constrained by the resources that it has to do the job. And that, that thought process is useful in, in any problem that kind of looks like that. And that increasingly, uh, I think our, our feeling is that more and more problems that we face here on earth, uh, follow those similar characteristics. Um, the more constrained 
um, a company is at how they use the resources that they've got to work with to do their job, the more they have to understand the job they're doing uh, and, you know, frankly, not be lazy about understanding it, uh, the less they can kind of get away with and the more efficient they have to be. And there really isn't anything more efficient than in how it uses resources than a spacecraft that has to do a job, you know, a couple hundred million kilometers away. Like you're as efficient as you possibly can be to get that job done. So wherever that thought process can yield value, we think that's a, a good place for our team to work. Great. Yeah, I think yeah, this idea of I think I've I have a couple of colleagues and friends that I went to university with who now work in a kind of Formula One car racing teams. Yeah. And there the situation is very similar where you're so used to working at the kind of cutting edge of what is possible in terms of structural mechanics, in terms of engine performance, that once you're kind of have that mindset ingrained, you then take it into your next job, even if it's no longer at a Formula One company. And it's it sounds like with your current company, you've kind of taken your background of working in you know very constrained environments, and you're now just broadening it out and, and looking at other areas where you, you can usefully employ that mindset. So I'd like to delve into, of course, kind of your, your uh, the, the space sector and the things that you are doing in space. And to set the scene, um, I'd just like to ask you about kind of the plans or the current plans for uh, moon exploration and getting to the moon. So NASA has announced that it wants to land back on the moon by mid-2020. Um, and so first of all, what is the motivation for going back after we got to the moon or after the Americans got to the moon in 1969? What is the main motivation for going there? Yeah, I, I think this recent push is, um, uh, it, the, I think the, the unique part about what's happening right now is that it, it's a confluence of new factors that weren't weren't necessarily present in, in the sixties, the sixties were, were, um, were deployed by and, and, and motivated strongly, of course, by the, the, the political nature and the adversarial nature of the Soviet union and the United States. And, and that provided, uh, a substantial amount of the motive force to, to yield the, the, the results of the Apollo program. Uh, the, the situation is at, at, at the same time, similar and, and characteristically different, uh, than, um, than it was at that point. Um, those, those same international political, uh, pressures exist. Uh, and I, I would say they, they're embodied today in, in China and China's own lunar ambitions. And that, to some extent, is propelling the United States in its uh, in its decisions to focus on the lunar surface as its next uh, natural step in in uh, in human exploration. Uh, the other is a I think a, a final finally a consensus amongst. Uh, the human exploration community here in the United States, which I would say has been over the, the last few decades has been uh, uh, in a little bit of an internal fight as to whether the moon or Mars is the right next destination. And I'd say that group has 
either uh, um, has in some ways begrudgingly found a consensus, um, but it has found a consensus that the, the lunar surface and the moon is that next step outside of low Earth orbit that kind of just makes a programmatic sense is probably the best word for it. And finally, the, the third piece, which is unique, I think, to this time period, is the commercial aspect. It's that NASA and the international space community, they're not the only groups that want to go to the moon. Uh, and you've got commercial interests that are well-funded uh, in, uh, in the form of SpaceX and Blue Origin, uh, of particular note that have their own lunar ambitions. Uh, and so that, com that combination, um, still the political, the international political element, the, the consensus of path in the United States amongst the civil space community and the commercial push that motive force that combo is what has kind of set the stage for what's going to happen over the next few years in terms of human lunar exploration. Okay, great. So now in terms of with your kind of background of developing kind of Mars exploration vehicles, so Mars rovers, how does the challenge of landing humans on the moon compare to being able to extend their stay. So for example, even developing kind of longer term habitation. Uh, yeah, I, I I think that um, there are there are some characteristic similarities and uh, and then there's some wild differences between the, the moon and Mars for sure. Um, like landing on the moon and like the, the the actual execution of getting onto the surface is is a um, uh, I think uh, objectively more uh, simpler problem than putting a similar payload or similar spacecraft on the surface of Mars. Mars has like just enough atmosphere that the atmosphere has to be dealt with and not enough atmosphere to actually do the whole job. So it makes the, the strategy of entry, descent, and landing super complicated uh, because you have to deal with the atmosphere, right? It's there but it doesn't actually do enough for you. So you have a, you end up with a, a very complex set of stages that are required to deal with the combination. So Mars has a very specific, is very specifically problematic from a standpoint of the, that phase of a mission and getting to the surface in the first place. The moon is just easier for, for, from that standpoint. They have this vacuum, it has fewer complexities. It's, gravitational pull is less. It's, it's trying to not kill you as much. It becomes a characteristically easier problem. Um, staying on the moon is actually a bigger issue, right? Especially in the, uh, the regions that people are interested in human in exploring, which is the, uh, and, and potentially staying in an indefinite way. And that, that's at the, the, the polar regions, particularly the south polar region of the moon, where there are um, areas of permanently permanently shadowed regions uh, where there is increasing scientific confidence that there's the presence of, of water ice in these pockets. 
Um, but in order to create a sustainable presence that isn't just like a one shot or two shot or three shot deal, like we have to figure out how to um, access and utilize the resources that are kind of present there. And we have to contend with this environment where it's kind of like being at the polar regions of the, of the earth, right? The, the sun never gets very high off of the horizon and there are, you're, you're operating in areas uh, that are in full sun and then right next to you are in full shadow. And you know, that's a problem with the vacuum, right? Your, 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 your effective temperature uh, drops uh, significantly and, 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 and uh, dramatically from one of those phases to another. So the development of the hardware, the development of the procedure, and the development of like the uh, um, the extra vehic- the vehicular tactics that you're going to use um, are likely quite different than what we've got in our as, as our mental picture from from the Apollo program. Uh, and so closing the loop on all of that. I think those are the, the most fun problems actually that we have here are like going back to the moon is certainly exciting. Staying on the moon and doing like sustainable surface activities, you know, that's the that's the real trick. We never quite got to that that part in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're 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 spot on there that having done something like we've been to the moon, but then taking in that step further and now saying, okay, we're going to stay on the moon. It just adds that extra little bit of excitement um, to probably even just motivate uh, your engineers just a little bit more, just because you are, you know that you're working on a first and that just makes it ever so um, exciting. Now, I'd like to discuss two specific projects in the space sector that um, first mode has been involved with. And the first one is NASA's Mars rover Perseverance. So could you um, tell us what First Mode's involvement was in, in the project? Uh, yeah, um, it actually, our, our involvement, um, our involvement with Perseverance started uh, right with the, with the beginnings of the company, um, which was just under three years ago. Um, the, the, the group that, that founded the organization uh, is, I guess, fortunate to have have a lot of um, uh, detailed understanding of curiosity, uh, and 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 a lot of the the spacecraft and the rover uh, perseverance is very similar to Curiosity. Right? It's a, it's a it's an incremental evolution of the platform, like the hardware, like the the vehicle itself between uh, curiosity and perseverance. So we had a lot of like, heritage knowledge that we could build on. Um, and so when we, uh, when we started first mode, perseverance was just finishing design activities and getting into, um, a phase at uh, JPL that they call ATLO, which is assembly test and launch operations. And ATLO is really the bringing it all together phase, uh, of where you are, um, uh, bringing the parts together, you are, um, uh, figuring out if they work, figuring out if they fit, figuring out what doesn't fit, trying to make design changes 
and, and bringing the systems parts uh, that have all been developed in parallel, finally seeing each other and coming into the coming into the form of the spacecraft and function of the spacecraft that you're going to you're going to put on top of a rocket and, and send to the send to the red planet. And so we we uh, were able to come in very quickly and help them prepare for the the actual activities of integrating and testing. Uh, the rover itself, the the physical and functional integration of the instruments, of the avionics that are on board, the uh, and the um, the electromechanical elements of the system that provide mobility and provide um, uh, a surface function, uh, and and so we spent a lot of time. Um, uh, getting all of that in place, all of the procedural developments and all of the process uh, that, that, the, um, that the team was going to need to be doing on uh, really on the high bay floor in the, in the big clean room uh, to get those systems safely put together. Uh, and, and so that, that, was, that was the start of our work. Um, we also have um we're, we're also have participated and are participating in a couple of different uh other parts of the uh of the um of the mission one was that along the way um in putting the vehicle together uh there's you're you're basically trying to make every day count uh and uh in getting to the to the launch you know, to the launch window. And in, and one of the things you have to do is, is put the vehicle through uh, two sets of environmental tests. One that's called cruise environments. That's all of the environments that it sees uh, on its way to Mars. And then the other is surface environments where the rover is on its own and it's being tested as though it's on the surface of Mars. Two characteristically different uh, um, uh, thermal and vacuum environments. And the rover uh, needed more time to come together uh, and uh, get its integration and test functions done, while the spacecraft, which the rover is definitely a critical part of, it needed to go through because of you know getting to the getting to the pad and being ready. It needed to go through its process, its cruise environments, um, and get to the and 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 get it done. And so they needed to happen in parallel, as opposed to the original plan, which was just to bring them together and do it all, to, you know, do it all as a spacecraft. So there was an uh, uh, an immediate need at that point of creating a surrogate that could represent the rover mechanically and thermally, um, so that that cruise set of tests could get done. And uh, we were able to quickly, uh, just because of past knowledge, pull that together create what we called the fover or like a, 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 a fake representation of the vehicle that could help them get through cruise environments and allow the vehicle, allow the actual rover, uh, actually a, a couple of, a, a good couple of months of extra time to test and integrate itself, uh, while the risk reductions for the cruise environment were continuing to be done. 
And finally, um, we're uh, participating right now in the preparation for entry, descent, and landing. Uh, and in particular, the the verification and the uh, operational participation in making sure that the vehicle transitions from one state to another state on its way in. And in that last set of many, many minutes from the time that the cruise, from the time that the vehicle is in cruise configuration, it jettisons its cruise stage, it goes through a sequence of events during entry, descent, and landing to um, uh, to actually that ends at on the surface, right? And 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 each of those is a is a a major state transition in the vehicle. Like its physical configuration is changing, its mass properties configurations are changing, its activities are changing. It, it, switches from one type of stabilization to another type of stabilization. It deploys a parachute. It, 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 it drives into powered, you know, turns on a propulsion system and, and uh, guides itself in. It propulsively descends. It deploys a rover. All of those are different state changes. And at each one of those points, the, we have to make sure that the system will respond to an unexpected event in a very good way, right? A robust way. And it doesn't, you know, inadvertently freak out and, you know, shut itself down and uh, do something inappropriate during a set of those critical activities. And that that is, that requires a comprehensive understanding of uh, like the, the verification and validation process of ensuring each of the, 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 the vehicle makes the right decisions at each of those steps. And that uh, if changes are being made to how the vehicle is going to do that while, um, yeah, like while we're in cruise, right, you might find a surprise and, and need to make a change that you haven't changed the way that the vehicle in some subtle way might respond to a fault or some sort of weird sensor reading it won't do something that it shouldn't do uh, when when it's faced with one of those critical transitions, uh, and uh, that we we remain involved in and will remain involved in that process uh, until the vehicle is on the surface. And I guess if my if I'm informed correctly, the kind of descent down to Mars is actually coming up relatively soon. So we're recording this at the tail end of January. And if I'm if I'm right, then I think the landing is planned for some time in February. So then that means that kind of your, all of your engineering and the sequencing of different uh, events will actually be put to the test relatively soon. Uh, in, I think, almost exactly three weeks from the time that we are talking. Uh, and, and so right now, this is... Uh, what's happening are really dress rehearsals of those last uh, couple of days uh, where the, where the, um, the team puts themselves through it in real time and then uh, makes sure that all of the contingencies that they're operating under, they've got, they've got understood. They've, uh, they've actually done off nominal versions of that dress rehearsal where they, um, intentionally inject gremlins and weird stuff into the scenario and see how the team responds. It's really the robustness 
testing the robustness and resilience of that decision-making process and of the autonomous behavior of the system on board to make sure that there isn't anything that's been missed. Um, and that's particularly complicated, I, I should say, this time because of COVID-19. It has fundamentally changed how the team operates uh, because in, in this case, a lot of that team is, is, is instead of crammed into one room, is operating either distributed or is remote. Uh, and so it's also stress testing those new unique elements of, of how, uh, of the ramifications of the environment that we're operating in right now, uh, and making sure that there isn't any new challenge that uh, comes out of just the logistics associated with that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, landing a rover on Mars is uh, a challenge um, by any stretch of the imagination, and then having to do it during a pandemic and remote working, you know, it just kind of elevates the difficulty another level. So the, the second um, mission or second project that I'd like to uh, speak about is NASA's Psyche mission, where NASA is sending a space probe all the way out to an asteroid in the asteroid belt. So again, the kind of dummy question to begin with, why would you want to go to an asteroid all the way out in the asteroid belt? Yeah, the asteroid belt is the single best place to um, to explore and, and answer questions about the origin of the solar system and the, um, and the formation of planets, right? The, 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 astro the, the main belt of asteroids was formed by, uh, by a, an ancient collision of two planetary bodies. Um, and what we're looking at is the, the after effects of that, that collision and like the debris and detritus from this, uh, from this in, in insanely huge event that occurred. And what, what you find then in the asteroid belt are different parts of um, the uh, the those former planetary bodies' crust, their their core, right? And and you you see different parts of that um, that kind of that planetary body's geological record, um, and so depending on the the, the actual uh, mineralogical characterization of the asteroid, you kind of know where in that planetary body that, that, that asteroid came from. And, and Psyche is a metallic asteroid. And so it is almost entirely like refinery grade iron, cobalt, and nickel. And it was a piece of one of these planetary bodies' cores. Uh, and so by evaluating, and, and it's, it's kind of preserved in this very unique, um, conf uh, this very unique condition that it, because it, after that event, it cooled over millions of years and in, in a microgravity environment. And so it, it's, it's, it's been pristinely preserved uh, orbiting uh, in the solar system between Mars and Jupiter, uh, just waiting for us to go out and take a look. And really, by taking a look at it, 
we're taking a look at what's inside the core of Earth. And we're taking a look in history at what um, what the solar, uh, like a picture, a snapshot of what the solar system looked like uh, and how it formed uh, billions of years ago. And so there's a set of questions really that can only be answered by going there. And that's, uh, that's what Psyche's mission is about. Right now, so I guess in this case, this is an entirely different application. So I presume we're not talking about a rover in this instance. So, so NASA is not sending a rover to land on an asteroid, uh, but it's an entirely different application. So what is it that first mode is working on in this particular mission? Yeah, well, the, the really interesting the really interesting part of um, of Psyche is that it's it's actually it's actually two missions in and of itself. Like there is just like Sojourner Truth was was a, a flight experiment that was riding on a mission called Mars Pathfinder. There is another mission on Psyche that is called the Deep Space Optical Communication or DSOC. A flight experiment and first mode has been responsible for the integration of like the mechanical the thermal and the the structural integration of the desoc experiment onto the psyche spacecraft it's uh, it's essentially a piggyback uh on um on the, the psyche mission and the really interesting thing about this is that, like right now, all of our all of our communications with um, with uh, our spacecraft in uh, around the solar system, they're all uh, done with radio frequency, and it's it's almost a miraculous technology, in my in my opinion, on how RF allows us to communicate with things that are so far away, like Voyager, Voyager One, and Voyager Two. Uh, and and we also use it for precise posi- like understanding the position and velocity of all of these spacecraft with uh, an extraordinary accuracy, which allows us to navigate around the solar system. Uh, but it's bandwidth limited, right? By and we have to use these enormous uh, radio frequency telescopes um, in uh, in variety of places around the, the Earth as part of the Deep Space Network to talk to these vehicles and, and that network, because we keep sending up more spacecraft, it gets, it gets busy right? and it gets overwhelmed with, with users. Um, optical communication is, um, a way to fix that and, uh, a way to get higher bandwidth and a way to get, um, uh, and a way to get some of these assets in space off of that, can over, that somewhat overconstrained deep space network and expand our ability to communicate data and expand the number of uh, spacecraft doing it. And, and this is a first demonstration of that technology at distance. Um, so at a, a set of, you know, we're, we'll be at a, um, up to, depending on where you are in your orbit, you're up to, uh, like uh, four or five astronomical units away from the Earth, and so now you're able to demonstrate this technology at a, a significant distance and confirm that indeed you can put that onto a spacecraft. You can rely on it to get important data back to Earth, 
And uh, hopefully in future vehicles that come after it, it will be a part of a normal complement of technologies that make it happen. All right. So shifting gears just a, a, a little bit, I'd like to ask a question or two about clean energy and, and hydrogen, which is an area that First Mode has recently um, got into in kind of the mining vehicle space. And I'm particularly interested in this because Airbus recently made an announcement which was quite um, spread quite widely in Europe, at least, uh, caused quite a buzz that they were going to commit to hydrogen as a future fuel source for um, their commercial air aircraft. And um, so, of course, you're, you're working with mining vehicles, but in, in some sense, it's all about transportation and mobility. So I was wondering, what are some of the kind of main technical challenges that you see in moving to kind of hydrogen-powered mobility, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I think you're right in that this is like this is a, a, not just a an application problem. This is a this is a, a an infrastructural challenge and, a, and an overall transportation issue. I'd say that the the key uh, problems with hydrogen and key challenges with hydrogen are related to its production, like in bulk, and being able to, to close the value proposition on uh, a, uh, first off, a clean and green method of creating that, that is, that hits a price point and a cost point that allows these larger users to switch to that as a, as a, as a, a basis of their operations. And once you've got that, your next problem is storage. And by that, I mean long-term storage of the and efficient storage of that, that uh, uh, fuel and then transportation, right? The transportation to distribution, all of which like we have developed over decades for, for petrol, for uh, diesel. Um, but much of it doesn't exist in, uh, in any substantial way for hydrogen. And so we're, we will see in the coming decades, both a, um, the, the technology, I think, of implementing this in a transportation infrastructure, I think is going to first start local. You find these big local problems like a port or a mine site where there's a lot of fuel usage, but it's in a relatively constrained space. And I think that you start there, that's the low hanging fruit of where hydrogen, I think is a good application. And then you need to be expanding that network, right? Think of those as like hubs or hub and spoke or something like that, where you find your big local problem and then you grow the applications utilization from there through a network of distribution. And, you know, just as that started with other fuels in the past, that network will necessarily need to begin, will need to be developed in the future for us to, for that future that Airbus talked about that you mentioned and the one that we're working on with, uh, with mining partners, um, for that to exist in a robust way that helps these businesses close the value proposition around it. Um, like that's, uh, all of that kind of needs to move together. I think what's got me optimistic now is because that's, that's been the problem with hydrogen for, for decades. Um, it's not, this isn't a new idea. Um, I think what's got me optimistic now is there's enough pressure 
within these large companies to essentially clean up their act. And, and, and they can't necessarily rely on continuing to operate in the same way that they have um, for much longer. And so they see the starting to see that need to move. And, and now you've got big actors that are all kind of wanting to move together. You get enough of that motive force and you find enough of those local spots where you can get a, a foothold and show that it works. And I think we, we, we could see a real transformation. And uh, I'm, I'm excited that we've got a, a role to play in that. Yeah, there definitely seems to be kind of a, a buzz um, growing around uh, hydrogen. And of course, the, the kind of second alternative route to, towards electrification or, or clean energy is what the likes of Tesla have basically pioneered, which is, of course, kind of battery-powered vehicles. Do you see or what do you think are some of the advantages that hydrogen has um, over kind of battery-powered vehicles? Yeah, I think it's a... I. I'm a strong advocate of it's not a, it's not a single, like there isn't a single winner to this. And I don't think there's a one size fits all problem, right? There's, um, there are applications where I, I, I do think particularly with like passenger, passenger vehicles, um, the, for the overwhelming majority of the applications, the, the battery electric might actually solve the issue. Um, there are the the larger the problem the more the local like onboard energy storage need and the more like the just the bigger the issue the more hydrogen starts to become the solution and and then uh and the more i would say the problem is local as opposed to distributed like uh personal autos i think is the ultimate distributed problem um and so the, I actually am a big fan of like the fire everything strategy at this point in order to, to solve the real problem, which is our, our fight with our, our changing planet and that there is a, a role to play for all of these technologies. It is finding where they are most properly suited and then making sure they, they achieve a foothold and it's more than just buzz. Right, that we've got a a sustainable and and in and permanent change to to how we actually power the, the the activities that we rely on every day to live our lives. Yes, absolutely. I guess with with any technology or technologies, it is always the case that there are these kind of unknowns that kind of crop up as you start working on the problem. And if that wasn't the case, then it would all be easy, right? We, we would know exactly where we were going. So it's actually probably wisest just to uh, fund all of these activities in some shape or form to, to allow us to, in 20, 30 years, be at a point where our energy is actually clean um, and we have made um, significant progress, be that through battery power or through hydrogen. Um, so... I'm wondering, just a kind of closing question, what is next for first mode in this kind of year of 2021? Obviously, you might be restricted by the ongoing pandemic, but what are perhaps some of the things that um, to look out for uh, in 2021 and um, some of the things that you're excited about in terms of upcoming space projects? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a, well, so we talked about one, which is the, the uh, NASA's Perseverance landing and really the 
arm, the small armada of international spacecraft with with China and with the United Arab Emirates um, that are all going to arrive here in the coming weeks. Very excited about that. Very excited about our, our contributions to um, to its success. Um, we uh, we deliver our hardware and integrate our hardware to the spacecraft on Psyche uh, uh, here in the next several months, uh, and that's a big big milestone for the company. And we're in the process of putting together a a, uh, a two megawatt hydrogen uh, hybrid hydrogen power generator, a fuel cell power generator for incorporation into a, a 300 ton capacity haul truck. Uh, and later this year, we're building it in Seattle. Later this year, it's going to head to South Africa, be integrated into a truck. And we're going to be at, uh, demonstrating kind of the full loop of, of green hydrogen um, deploying a, a rather large like building size vehicle uh, and uh, showing that you can do it on uh, you can run that on hydrogen and you can run that as zero emission. And for for us and for our uh, mining partners, that's a really big step in in their plans to to clean up a lot of their operations in the next decade. Great. Well, I'll definitely be kind of keeping my fingers crossed um, with the Mars rover Perseverance uh, touching down in, in February, and we'll be thinking about first mode if it does touch down successfully. Um, so just as a final closing question, um, where and, and how can listeners stay up to date with um, developments at first mode? Uh, well, our website, firstmode.com, is a good landing point. Um, we reach out on all elements of social media um, and also on the website um, we, we we have a lot of blog posts that I think are really good and give insights into both the activities as well as the people that we have working for us um, and re really all of the stuff that we're doing is powered by those by those good sets of brains um, and um, and there's a, a way that you can uh, subscribe to updates uh, that the company puts out on a regular basis uh, right there. And so that's my suggestion. Great. And I will definitely second the blog posts. I have been reading those and they are definitely excellent. Great insight into kind of the engineering side, but also the team that makes it all work. So Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast today. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk. If you would like to learn more about First Mode, then head over to airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you will find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.